0: you in on internet stories from around the world hey everybody welcome back to another episode of bcc and today for our hot topic segment we have a special guest Yes, who we who is julia bloom woo hello <laughs> um, Julia is one of our teammates at the Internet Society Foundation, and we just wanted to invite her to this conversation around a hot topic that's been bubbling around the office, which is daylight savings time. This just happened last week, I think. Was it yeah. last weekend? Yes. Um, where Early in, November. in mm-hmm, um, several parts of the world, the time changed and went back, fall back. Yes, went back one hour. Mm-hmm. And uh, it got us thinking and talking because time is so important for the work that we do and scheduling and uh, things around the world, but also for the internet. How does the internet deal with daylight savings time? And I think that would be pretty important. So that's what we're talking about today. And first, I guess I would just ask, do you guys know why we have daylight savings time? What I read was that it
1: was introduced in Germany in the First World War to save energy. That's what the internet said. Is that what you guys found too?
2: That is what I found as well. But
1: actually it doesn't
2: save energy because 80% of the world's population does not adhere to daylight savings time. Yeah, it started in Germany to save energy and I watched a YouTube video and it mentioned that in the UK, the reason it was kept was to boost productivity. So apparently, if it's more light outside after work, people are more inclined to go places and buy things. Um, Kids are more likely to play outside in the wintertime if it's not darker. So I guess it serves its purpose in in that aspect.
0: I feel like as a kid here, I heard stories about it being connected to like agriculture and farming and that more daylight and like adjusting times allow for more productivity on farms and things like that, which I was like, okay, maybe that makes sense. But then I was like, but we've got machines now, don't we? We're not really, I don't know. I've never been really on a farm, so I don't really know how that works. But um, I think there are probably a lot of reasons, but they're all ultimately connected to like productivity and energy use, right? Yeah, absolutely. But then the question becomes, how does the internet take that into account when times change and when they don't? Like somehow on my calendars, so I have an Outlook calendar, I have a Gmail calendar. It automatically does it, but it keeps it in in order with other places where I have you know other places around the world. So what, how do what's how do you theorize like how that's happening?
1: So there'll be little code blocks on every like application or like every piece of software or like website or whatever that deals with time conversions and time changes and there'll be these like conditional statements that say if the time if the thing happens whatever the thing is happening in the application if it happens at this time then make it be this time in this time zone or the other way around or a bunch of different things and they're all um they're all written with like years and dates there's this whole little block so every single thing every single thing that we look at on the internet there's a time associated with it somewhere, even if we don't see it as the users. Like even in our, um, even in Flux, like we record the exact time and date where someone's submitted their application and it converts their local time that they submitted into Eastern time. And we have code in Flux to do that. So if you think about all of those little code blocks for every single little thing and how, I mean, it's decent, right? It's a decent little piece of code for everything how much energy is it using store everything julia the internet is too big
0: <laughs> but are we saving energy and then right like i don't know energy? but but this is the thing it's like okay but if the whole point of daylight savings time is to save energy but then you're having to use energy to like account for that mm-hmm. it's kind of like cancels it out right yeah i mean and i'm sure there are many other things that cancel out too Right.
1: The argument doesn't really stand anymore. But then like to tip Paige's point earlier about nothing being real. I mean, it's just time isn't real.
0: It
2: is a uh, social construct.
1: I mean, and then you think about all the businesses,
2: all the organizations that have employees all over and do business all over. And they have that bit of code every single time for every single meeting. And then, you know, the, like you said, it just magically happens. I click on the thing and the internet does the thing and it sends out, but there's like energy that goes into that. And like, I'm not manually converting time, even though I did watch a YouTube video and I've learned to do it. Um, I'm not manually converting time like that. So it takes up so much energy. I guess this was thought of before the internet. So maybe we need to revisit it and think about conserving energy.
1: Yeah. You know, interestingly, I read that, um, It used to be up until 2007. So there have been several changes over the last century or whenever. When was it first introduced? First World War. So changes to like when daylight savings happens and the dates. And it used to be that um, Canada, US and Europe all changed on the same Sunday. And then in 2007, this is the rumor I read. I don't know if it's real. But the US changed what they did. They extended the fallback by they extended extended daylight savings by a week so that little kids in Wyoming would have more daylight to trick or treat.
0: Oh, but I kind of like that. Okay, but then also though, so there must be, there is a standard time that is considered universal. So there's UTC, which is coordinated universal time. And so most systems are using that as a standard measurement of time. And then all of us around the world who maybe have different time zones, that standard time is being converted into whatever local time we're in. So I think that undergirds like the whole system probably of the Internet in terms of time that they're that we're just using UTC to sort of account for um, those things. Because, again, sometimes it changes locally and sometimes it doesn't. Like Paige's example in Jamaica, if you don't do it. And even some other states, it's even state to state in the U.S., which I think is really bizarre whether or not they do it. I think Arizona is one where they don't do it in Hawaii. So it's just kind of all over the place. But it's a really I think it's really interesting to think about how sophisticated the Internet has to be to account for all of that. It's pretty crazy.
2: I mean, yeah. And UTC came about. In from again, YouTube video <laughs> that I watched, um, because of travel. So, like, there was a meeting in the 1880s, and yeah, there's a meeting in the 1880s, and they decided on a Greenwich line. So, like, you know, let's divide the earth in half for whatever purpose and let's make a line through it, and the place that one i don't know how this worked but was greenwich in england so the line runs through this town called greenwich which is why it's the greenwich meridian and the other half of it on the back end it's a circle um so on the back end of it it's the international date line and then they divided the earth into like 20 24 different time zones like 24 different sections so how you would calculate it manually is if you're going To the right of the Greenwich, you add an hour to Greenwich time. And if you're going to the left of Greenwich, you add an hour, you subtract an hour from Greenwich time. And I just think that's crazy because the countries that existed in the 1800s do not exist anymore.
0: And do we need to revisit time or are we just going to continue on? Should we redraw the boundaries of time? Well, because they're not necessarily like national boundaries or state boundaries, right? So because those have changed over time. So then you have places that didn't exist that are now on different times. Well, and then also when you say they, who's they? Who's deciding um, that?
2: Whoever was in charge in the 1880s. So <laughs> in the charge people of the world. in charge now, they did it. But <laughs> just because you mentioned national boundaries, I, again, a YouTube video. Samoa and Tonga were on the eastern end of the international date line. So we're on the back end of the globe. If you're looking at it from the traditional front view, Um, they were on the eastern end. They skipped a day to be on the western end, to be in the same time zone with trading partners, New Zealand and Australia. They they skipped a day. They just said because time doesn't exist, Paige. Can you imagine being born on that day? (laughs) <laughs> what know? happened were you born
0: <laughs> you were <laughs> so what day just... was it what it, do we know what the missing day is
2: I actually don't know what the
0: missing we're gonna day find is, out but okay. we
1: will we will link it below <laughs>
0: yeah, okay great that's crazy
1: that one birthday one time right <laughs> like the next year theoretically would have like they don't skip that day
0: every year right
2: that doesn't make any sense no they just skipped it the one time so if you were born on that day I guess you're just one less year old again time is well, what about construct. people who are
0: born on in like leap years and leap days right like and if isn't that end of february where they add extra days sometimes yes they do add an extra. again who are they who's they
2: again <laughs> we need to find who See they one. are right we need to find who they are uh <laughs> revisit daylight savings time and possibly draw an entire map
1: of the um time zone again so work to be done I remember um, talking about or like learning about that change with Samoa and Tonga when I was a kid and the way that at least the way that I internalized it, the way that I feel like we discussed it as children was that they did it on purpose so that they could be like first in the day, like they could see daylight first in that day or something. I know, I know. These are important things. Oh, wow. why countries change times. Yeah. Do you remember that as a kid, Julia, growing up in New Zealand? Do you remember when they did that? Um, I feel like I did, but I can't say for sure because I have no idea when it happened. And it
0: (laughs) could have been well before my time and I'm just (laughs) making up (laughs) a memory. (laughs) But you remember people talking about that or as a kid talking about it.
1: Yeah, because, you know, daylight savings, when you're a kid, it blows your mind because you're like, why are we changing time? You know, this is... Mm An hour of a little kid's time is much more than one hour is to us, right? It's a bigger proportion of their life. And, you know, it means more when you can stay up late or whatever. Um, So, yeah, I do remember that being a hot topic of conversation around the playground when I was a kid. Well, and it still is.
0: Well, thank you so much. This is super fun. I don't know what the takeaway is here other than to say time doesn't exist and it's a social construct. So everybody Mm -hmm. just make sure you get outside for trick-or-treating on time. Enjoy that. (laughs)
2: Hello, and thanks for listening. This is another episode of BCC copying you in on internet stories from around the world. And today we will be having a conversation with Teddy Woodhouse and Ana Maria Rodriguez from the World Wide Web Foundation. Um, The World Wide Web Foundation is also a grantee of the Internet Society Foundation. So I'm very excited um, to hear more about the work and have you guys listen in as well. Um, Teddy Woodhouse is the Alliance for Affordable Internets Senior Research Manager. He has helped author a number of publications relating to affordable, meaningful and sustainable access to the Internet, um, including several editions of the Affordability Report, um, A4AI's Device Pricing Research and Sustainability in Connectivity. Anna is the research analyst with A4AI and the Web Foundation. As part of her work, she has conducted a number of quantitative analysis uh, relating to internet affordability in low and middle income countries. Thank you both for joining me.
3: Yeah, thanks so much for having us. So
2: I guess I'll just launch into the first question, which is what exactly is your research aimed to do?
3: So our project, the Costs of Exclusion, um, is a bit of an experiment for us as an organization. So at our organization, a 4 and the Web Foundation, we have been working for quite a few years now on the digital gender gap, which is roughly described as the different kind of digital experiences and access to technology that uh, men and women have in several parts of the world. And as a general trend, women have less access to these technologies. Um, and have kind of more limited experiences as net statistical averages um, than men do. Um, So we recognize that this is a huge problem and we've been advocating for a lot of policy change in several parts of the world to see where we can close this gap and have kind of a more equitable digital future for us all. And so what this project does is it's looking at what are some ways to understand the economic consequences that aren't just for the people who are held offline, but for societies at large. In terms of what is lost, in terms of the potential kind of economic revenues, the lost information, the lost uh, you know, knowledge sharing that happens as a result of people being left offline. Um, with the ultimate objective here is that we hope to see policy change and new allies activated, who you know may not be the typical audience who are uh, you know sensitized to gender as a policy issue, but we'll see the economic consequences that are affecting their country because of the digital gender gap and therefore become activated um, to help us be allies, fight for policy change and help close the digital gender gap.
2: Thank you for that. Um, I I read your report. Um, it's amazing, and I I guess the question I had was around the methodology that was used, because I think a lot of the times when you see folks talking about gender, it's normally qualitative, where it's centered around human rights and all of these, I don't think I've seen something trying to quantify the exclusion of um, girls and women from the internet. So can you talk a bit about the methodology used?
4: So the methodology, yeah, you're right. Most of the time, the gender um, analysis and research is qualitative, um, mainly because it's hard to find data, uh, quantitative data on gender. Uh, But we wanted to really quantify uh, that cost of excluding women from the internet. So we really needed a quantitative approach. Um, And so we found a way to really measure that in terms of quantitative aspects. So the impact of um, keeping women offline uh, to the GDP of different countries, um, mainly low-income countries. So we really... um, took that approach because that's what we wanted to do. And so um, we found a bit of a challenge finding the data and it was not easy, but we found uh, the best way to do it. And we found a confident and robust way of quantifying um, that cost. And that's why we did using a number of statistical methods um, and combining um, some of them to really find that number and that quantitative figure that gave us the idea of how much does it cost to keep women offline.
2: Yeah, and I really, as someone who is more interested in qualitative data, because I like to tell stories, I think quantitative data is really important when it comes to policy making, because we know that policymakers like to see a figure amount. So saying, you know, we've been appealing the human rights end for a very, very long time when it comes to women and girls. So I think doing it quantitatively, where you can say this is the dollar amount it's costing your country, is is really helpful when it comes to appealing to policy and um. As it relates to your findings, I'll let you speak more about them. But the one I wanted to share with our listeners was that countries have missed out on a trillion U.S. dollars in GDP as a result of excluding women and girls from the digital world. And in 2020, the loss of GDP was 126 billion US dollars. And that's, that's just really crazy to me. And that's one of many conclusions that you, uh, your report outlines. Would you mind just commenting on that one and mentioning the, the others?
3: Sure. Yeah. And um, so I guess we can say that, uh, you know, it, it, that is kind of the cumulative effect for these countries. And we tried to get kind of a, you know, estimated a picture of what the size of this problem is, because that's a huge part of it is when you can't measure it and when you lack data, it becomes quite difficult to know how stubborn it can be to fix or how problematic it can be and how difficult it can be um, and the, the limitations of what's, you know, what's lost because we aren't solving this problem. Um, and so in addition to that kind of top line figure around GDP and kind of the overall economic activity lost, one of the other numbers is that we've been using particularly with governments as we've started some of the policy discussions is around lost tax revenue. So translating that number into kind of tax to GDP numbers roughly, it's uh, 24.7 billion as the last year um, in lost economic, uh, in lost tax revenue. And so for governments, that's a huge figure in terms of what they could be doing to buy new jobs uh, for the COVID-19 uh, pandemic or building schools, hospitals, other forms of infrastructure. And so we really want to make it clear that this shouldn't be considered a problem that only affects a small part of the world, that it should only be a burden held by those who are left offline. It's actually there's so much that is lost by all of us in common because of it, um, that we should be concerned about this and taking action on it um, in common as well. So. Fingers crossed this strategy works out and we do see some policy change in the coming years as well.
2: Thank you for that. Um, Speaking of policy, the report outlined the React framework. Can you talk a bit more about what that is?
3: Um, So yeah, so the React framework, um, it was actually a precursor to this report. Um, So funnily enough, it was one of those poetic moments with the report launch that Our report on the costs of exclusion launched, I think it was um, on an anniversary, I can't remember exactly how many years after, but on the anniversary of this release of the Accra Declaration, which came out of the Africa Summit for Women and Girls in Technology, where the activists and thinkers and feminists there at that event put together this framework, REACT, short for rights, education, access, content, and targets, as kind of five thematic pillars to really conceptualize for policymakers ways to convert, you know, ideas and areas of prob- you know problematic areas into potential policy solutions, and we saw that still being a problem today in terms of underwhelming policies in all of these five areas. And so we thought it was still relevant to conceptualize this problem of the digital gender gap and the solutions that we hope come out of it through this framework. So examples could be for rights, for example, um, it can be stronger uh, consumer protection laws so that people have more confidence in e-commerce. Um, for access, it's about breaking gender norms that say women and girls shouldn't be using technology and really you know, battling that stigma that exists in many parts of the world. Um, and even things to the really practical stuff with targets of we wanna see more governments that are setting clear targets around gender equitable access to the internet in the next few years. And so it's about having a time limit of, you know, in the next five years, we want to see 20% or 30% or 40% more people connected to the internet. And as part of that, we want to see the digital gender gap narrowing um, by a specific percentage as well. Um, And So it's ideas of that, of bringing those together as a comprehensive and holistic approach to addressing this problem. is. What we hope policymakers will do as a result
2: I do I, I share your hope as well. I think that a lot of times policymakers talk about wanting to make evidence-based um, policy and this is this is a perfect time to do that. The evidence is here, this report exists and this is a perfect time to take this and consult with you know the various stakeholders involved and, and make good policy that will help connect um, women and girls and everyone fully to the internet. Thank you both for chatting with me. I really, really appreciate you taking time out um, to have this conversation.
4: Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much.
2: You would have just heard uh, my interview with Anna and Teddy from the World Wide Web Foundation, a grantee of um, the Internet Society Foundation. And we had a chat about the digital gender gap. So essentially what we chatted about was the cost of exclusion, like the actual dollar amount that it costs to exclude women and girls from the Internet and that is about one trillion U.S. dollars in GDP for um, the entire globe. And one other figure that I thought was really interesting was that men are 21 percent more likely to be online on the Internet than women are globally. And that has risen to 52 percent in least developed countries. Um, Want to get you guys's reaction on that.
0: OK, so my first reaction to that report and also to listening to that interview was that when you start talking about dollar amounts with B's and T's in front of the, the names, like that's a lot of money. We're not talking about just like a little bit of something. We're talking about like billions upon billions of dollars that really could be helping to provide so much stuff for so many people around the world. And um to have it quantified that way is just really shocking and jaw-dropping it's just a stark reminder of how systems and institutions around the world just remain really 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 entrenched in sexist and gender beliefs that are just really harmful and it's it's so sad to me because you know women are innovating constantly women have to be innovators women have to be entrepreneurial like we just have to for our survival so it just is really so crazy to me that that to see those numbers like that and to to have that be a figure it's it's nuts really
2: yeah I mean when I first saw it I was like wait no that can't you know like you're almost in disbelief and then you think about the the stereotypes that exist in in the tech industry and it's of being a tech bro right Silicon Valley or tech bro um so you know of course that along with technology and a lot of the things around the internet is exported globally and the unfortunate consequences that women are are excluded from that and the one thing I did chat with them about was just the policy implications that this might have because I think that for a long time people have been saying it's bad to not have women on the internet right like appealing to morals and this the kind of humanitarian appeal that you normally see around these issues and they decided to go the complete opposite route and quantified like here's a dollar amount here's a number you know for the policy folks out there or the leaders in charge instead of saying we're going to connect women because we're nice people you can say this is this is the amount of money we're losing you know like kind of appealing to people who make policy in the language that they speak which is dollar amount yeah
0: julia do you have a thought
1: yeah, I was just gonna it reminded me of this book that um I started reading, I've not finished it. It was recommended by B, actually. It's called Invisible Woman.
0: Yes, it's, yes, I love that book.
1: Yeah, uh, and just how um, you know, the digital world is designed for men. And as long as that continues, then this this difference, this loss is um, this cost I guess is gonna perpetuate. But what do we do to change it? I mean, who Change You know, we're working at such a disadvantage as women already in the tech world, I mean, as you say, tech bros, but so how do you change it? Like
0: what, what do we do? What do we do
1: as a foundation?
0: Well, I could say that internally our team, um, which I think is a really special team, is made up primarily of women. And I think we get some, some criticism for that sometimes. Um, but I think you know to to be in in the digital space and in the tech realm as a group of women, um, while it shouldn't be rare and it shouldn't be um something that's not happening all the time, um, it is. But I think also what's important is that um, it doesn't mean that women haven't been contributing. It just maybe means that they haven't been recognized for those contributions or they've had to work,, uh, you know, undercover to make those things happen. So, you know, there are lots of women historically who did contribute and continue to contribute to the development and growth of the internet. Mm-hmm. Are they always recognized? Probably not. But I know just on the ISAC side, they, side there's some pretty phenomenal women um, who've been there a long time. Uh, mm-hmm. Shout out to Jane, who've been doing some some really awesome work for a long time in the space. Um, and, and I know recognition for those, those efforts and contributions are few and far between sometimes, so it's hard out here for women. I just a like a quick tidbit. I remember rewatching,
2: um, hidden figures. And I was reminded that the first computers were people and they were women. They were black women. Um, yeah. Interesting tidbit there.
0: Yeah. And I really, I mean, I know that, um, World Wide Web and Alliance for Affordable Internet have been doing a lot of this work and really have been champions around this issue for a long time. And I think I was really excited um, when this project came through sort of our, our, my desk about what they were trying to do and was really excited about trying to, to support that. And I I know that the report is landing with quite a big thud um, and I've seen it in some of my networks and things and other podcasts, podcasts that I listen to that people are talking about it. And so I really I hope that it it really does have an impact and I hope it encourages folks to really think about what those costs are and also what the exclusion is, you know, like, what does exclusion look like? Does it look like I don't have access to the Internet or does it look like I don't have a phone? Does it look like, you know, I don't have money to pay for a, a data bundle like, you know, more questions around what that exclusion actually is. Um, I think it's also needed and, and could be helpful to, to further the conversation in the calls. Um. Thanks so much, Paige, for that interview. And thanks for copying us in on that. Thank you to Julia for joining us today, special guest. Thank you so much. Um. And thanks to everybody for listening. We will talk to you next time. PCC is supported by the Internet Society Foundation.